This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today we are talking about the limits of grantor-retained annuity trusts. Just when you think you know what the limits are, uh, the IRS throws something at you, and these sorts of things can happen from time to time, but it has happened somewhat recently, so we should talk about it. The The context to this, and, and we've talked about these things on the podcast quite a bit in the past, but just for a little bit of gloss for anybody who's not sure... The context of this is the Grantor Retained Annuity Trust, or GRAT. Uh, A Grantor Retained Annuity Trust, first of all, is a creature that is created by Congress. Um, It's a feature of the Internal Revenue Code and the Treasury regulations. So when I start describing these things, if you're not familiar with them, just understand that Congress literally created them. And the purpose of the grantor retained annuity trust was, in essence, as a backstop against other transactions that the IR or Congress uh, viewed as more abusive than a GRAT transaction. Because as you'll see with GRATs, you can you can obtain some significant benefits um, by using the GRAT. So, with a grantor retained annuity trust, the grantor, the person who creates the trust, contributes property into the trust and then takes back what's called a qualified annuity interest. And a qualified annuity interest is the right to receive a fixed amount annually or payable at least annually. And that fixed amount is typically paid um, over a term of years, uh, some set number of years. And everything that's left in the trust after those years are done and all those annuity payments have been paid back gets paid out to the remaining beneficiaries of the trust, which is usually family members, or it might be a trust for the benefit of family members, okay? The value of the qualified annuity interest is reduced from the value of what was initially contributed into the trust, and the the balance is the value of the gift for federal gift tax purposes, okay? So if the value of the qualified annuity interest, for example, is worth $10, and the contributed amount into the trust in day one is worth $11, then the gift is $1, okay? 11 minus 10. And these valuation principles, uh, in conjunction with a case called Walton, which was a case of Walton Walmart fame family, um, have sort of combined to say that in essence, although you may not be able to make it totally, totally zero, uh, depending on who you talk to, um, you can make a grat a non-gift, at least on the surface, so that for when you value the annu- the qualified annuity amount, it is worth the same amount of money as what went into the trust, okay? So that the answer to this little math problem that I just described is zero, and therefore there was no gift, even if the assets in the trust appreciate in value and there's something left in the trust at the end of its term, such that money actually moves to family at the end of the term or actually moves into a family trust at the end of the term um, because the gift tax 
and the gift amount is determined on day one, not at the end of the trust, it would look in the eyes of the IRS that there was no gift at all, even though money did in fact move on to family members. And that basically means that the money that did move to family members moves on tax-free or gift tax-free anyways. And so that can be a hugely valuable thing. It essentially allows the grantor, if this is a well-to-do grantor, to contribute property into the GRAP, to freeze the value of what they now have in their estate or in their hands, the value being the payment of the qualified annuity interest, and to shift the appreciation on that value, that being the, uh, the amount that is left over in the trust at the end of the term to family members, uh, to move on to the family members without having to pay a gift tax on that amount. So these are really powerful tools. They're, they're quite handy. Um, but they've had some limitations that I think most people thought we had kind of narrowed down. Okay, so one limitation is, like I described, the, the value of what on day one is supposed, supposedly going to family, so the gift amount probably needs to be something more than zero. Um, I think theoretically it could be zero, but best practices tend to be that you would want it to be something slightly more than zero. There's some support for that position in the regulations, for example, um, and it also allows you for, uh, to report something on a gift tax return that starts a three-year gift tax return audit period or the statute of limitations. And so it, it probably needs to be something more than zero. The the term of the uh, trust then probably needs to be at least two years. There might be some support in the regulations to say that the term could be less than two years, although most people seem to agree when you look at the commentators out there that two years is probably the, the, the shortest amount of time possible that one of these grats can last, meaning you're, you're going to make at least two annuity payments. Then the amount that's paid under this qualified annuity payment amount needs to be a fixed dollar amount, but it can increase in value year over year if you want it to, but the increase cannot be more than 120% of the previous year or the amount that was payable in the previous year. That comes straight out of the regulations. Then you can also defer paying the annuity amount for up to 105 days after the end of whatever the year is, the year could be like a calendar year or or typically would be the anniversary of setting up the trust but you can delay paying the annuity payment for up to 105 days and and so that is you know one of the limitations that you bump up into um when you're doing grants and that that's again that's something that's straight out of the regulations that's not even uh, there's no speculation about it that that is what it is so there's there's been this sort of understanding that we have these limitations on grats they can be used in certain ways but you can't you can't bump up against these limitations but one of the handy things about grats and this comes straight out of the regulations is that the qualified annuity interest can be described as a fraction or a percentage of the value of the initial contribution to the trust Okay, and what that basically meant, and sorry, the, the regulations also say if you're going to use that kind of language in the trust, then you also have to have language in the trust that says that if you mess up the valuation, that you'll have certain adjustments to the amount that was payable from the trust, and those adjustments are going to be made to make sure that the correct amount was either paid into the trust or reimbursed to the trust if, if too much was paid out. So for example, if you 
undervalued the assets that were initially contributed to the graph for some reason. Let's say they were not super easy to, to value. They weren't like publicly traded stock, for example. But you, I mean, you can mess up the valuation of publicly traded stock. But, you know, let's say you mess up the value. You value, value it at less than its actual value on day one of the, the trust. Then you made a payment. Well, you've got to adjust those payments to pay out the correct amount once you've determined within a reasonable amount of time, the correct valuation, okay? And there's some adjustment language that's required that goes into the trust to sort of make those those adjustments under these fractions and percentages. But if, if you stated the qualified annuity amount as an amount that's payable as a fraction of the value of what was initially contributed to the trust, then in theory, all you do is just adjust through the fraction. So it's not like what you paid was the incorrect amount. You just are adjusting through the fraction. So it's sort of an automatic adjustment. Because if you had stated the annuity as being a fixed dollar, like $10, but you thought you were paying that $10 based on a valuation that turned out to be false, well, in the future, you can't pay out more than $10. You've, you've set yourself in stone on $10, but if you state it as a fraction, then the amount that needed to be paid would be just a fraction of whatever that valuation was, which could be which could go up or down, even if you initially thought it was $10. That, that's sort of the theory. Well, that theory seems to now have a limitation that perhaps we were not anticipating fully. Because in Chief Counsel Memorandum 2021-52018, the IRS was faced with a situation where a taxpayer had created a grant. This taxpayer owned a, a sort of a, a venture or a company that they had started. Uh, this company was shopping around offers. In fact, it had four or five offers on the table at the time that they created the grant. And they valued the interests that were put into the grant using some valuations that were used for executive compensation purposes, except the valuation that was used was based on business performance and not based on the actual offers that they had received. Well, in the next year, or roughly the next year, the taxpayer also made a contribution of assets into a charitable remainder trust, which gives you a charitable deduction. And in that case, they used a valuation an appraisal that valued the stock taking into account the offers that were on the table. Well, the difference in the values was something by like a multiple of three. So the value that they used for the grant purposes, which is, was this executive compensation value, was uh, determined based on a, a number that was three times less than sort of the offer number um, that they used for getting their charitable deduction. Well, the IRS doesn't like this. And the IRS in this chief counsel memorandum, which it just for anybody who's unacquainted, is a memorandum that's internal to the IRS. So say a revenue agent who's doing the audit has a question about the law, they can refer the question to the IRS chief counsel's office in Washington, D.C., and the chief counsel office will then issue an opinion on what the, the legal conclusion should be under the facts and circumstances of the case. So that, that's what this is. It's not binding precedent or anything, um, but it is an indication of the thinking of the IRS or, you know, some indication of the thinking of the IRS, I should say, because they're not necessarily held to these things either. Um, but the IRS essentially said, look, e even though they stated the law correctly about using being able to use a percentage or a fraction, and even though they stated the law correctly and saying that you have to include language that does these 
adjustments if you get the valuation wrong when you use a percentage or fraction. And even though they say that the, the trust itself qualified as a GRAT on its face, they don't point out whether or not the GRAT had these fractional or percentage uh, provisions in it, although the fact that they pointed out that you know, they sort of point out those sections of the regulations indicates that maybe it did. The IRS essentially said, and this was based on some uh, case law that, that re really relates to charitable remainder trusts, that number one, the valuation was totally wrong. It should have taken into account the offers that were on the table and that any willing seller, willing buyer would have reasonably anticipated that this, this deal was going to go through and they would have taken into account these offers. Okay, that's the first thing. So therefore, the appraisal was totally wrong that they used this executive compensation appraisal that they used for the GRAT was totally wrong. And I don't know that there's really much argument to be made there. Um, you really want to get a, a true appraisal done for any sort of gift tax purposes. You just want to have a real appraisal done. And those executive comp appraisals are not necessarily the right appraisals um, to do that. They can be handy, and they usually do inform the appraisal that you get. And your appraiser, whoever that would be, would almost always want to have a copy of the executive compensation appraisal because it might lend itself to uh, some context and, and help the appraiser to understand what the value could be. But you don't necessarily want to re rely on those. You want to have actual genuine, genuine appraisals done in most cases. The second thing that the IRS said was, well, look, even though the trust qualifies a grant on its face, and even though um, the regulations have the, this language about uh, fractions and percentages and adjustments. This was so bad that it ended up being that the trustee retained tens of millions of dollars more that was shifted on to the remaining beneficiaries of the trust and didn't get paid back to the grantor of the trust that the operation of the trust didn't operate as the payment of a qualified annuity interest because it was underpaid by so much. I and therefore, the trust didn't qualify as a GRAT at all. Now, the consequence of not qualifying as a GRAT is that the, in this little gift tax calculation that I was describing, the value of the qualified annuity interest is zero. So when you're doing, doing the calculations, like in my example, it was you put in $11, you retained an annuity interest equal to 10, therefore it was a gift of one. Well, if you don't have a qualified annuity interest, you put in $11, what you retained is worth zero, therefore it's a gift of 11. And then you have to pay gift tax on 11, not one, which can be jarring depending on the numbers. And I'm guessing in this case, it would have been jarring for this taxpayer because of the numbers. The So the effect of this is that the taxpayer would have had to have paid gift tax on the total value, the valuation being the actual appraised value based on the offers that were on the table, which were apparently quite large, um, and they would have had to, the taxpayer would have had to pay gift tax on that value, not the executive compensation value that was used to initially create the trust. So, you know, not only did the taxpayer in this case, or at least on the recommendation of the chief counsel's office, would the taxpayer have lost on the question of the correct appraisal to use, the taxpayer also lost on the question of whether they can reduce the value of the gift by the value of the annuity payments. And in both cases, the answer was no, they can't use the executive comp appraisal. And no, they don't get to reduce the gift. Therefore, they have to pay gift tax on the total value of what was put into the trust, even though they were paid back money from the trust. And even though it could be the case, although the 
the chief counsel memorandum doesn't get into it, it could be the case that they would have been owed the extra money based on the, the correct valuation because the annuity payments might have gone up because if the annuity payments were stated as a percentage or fraction of the fair market value of what was originally contributed to the trust, for example, and the fair market value was determined by the IRS to be much higher than they initially contemplated, they would have been owed extra money from the trust. So even though they would have gotten that extra money back, they would have, in, in essence, have paid gift tax on the extra money that they received back. So it's a really terrible result for uh, the taxpayer in this case, if that in, in fact was the result, because again, this chief counsel memorandum is really just the IRS's internal opinion. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the conclusion of the case, but at least as as the result would play out in this chief counsel memorandum, it's a horrible result for the taxpayer. It's It's like the worst possible result. What is most surprising, though, is that before this chief counsel memorandum came out, I think most people assumed that these valuation adjustment provisions in the grantor retained annuity trusts, which are directed to be put into the trust by the regulations, would protect you against messing up the valuation when you initially create the trust. I think that's the initial. That's the uh, that's been the assumption, I should say. So the limitation, so to speak, on Gratz was that, yeah, you want to get a good, you want to get a good value, but if you mess up the value, you're going to make these adjustments in the end anyways, and it shouldn't change the value of the gift. Um, so because it's just a percentage or fraction, and then it just adjusts the values, and then it doesn't really adjust the value of the gift, but. That doesn't necessarily appear to be true, at least in the eyes of the IRS, if there isn't a true good faith effort to get a genuine fair market value appraisal for the assets that were contributed into the trust initially. Uh, And if you don't do that, and if you use an appraisal that's so divorced from the reality of the business, including offers that are on the table, that the IRS at least thinks that it has a position to argue that the entire arrangement fails. And then you get this horrific event where you're paying, potentially paying gift tax on assets that you actually didn't give away. It's like a phantom tax. So it's a really terrible result for a taxpayer. So it's, you know, it, it just adds a little bit of uh, risk to doing grantor retained annuity trusts. It makes them, um, it makes it clear that the IRS is less tolerable of them than maybe we thought. And it makes it clear that you need to be careful when you're valuing the assets that go into the trust and that perhaps you would, number one, you'd want to get a a full-blown appraisal based on all the facts. If it's an asset that's difficult to value, then that's that's obvious. But number two, you want to be very clear about the correct valuation for gift tax purposes of what goes into the trust initially so that you don't run into the same footfalls that the IRS wanted to oppose on the taxpayer in this chief counsel memorandum. So it really, it shifts the, the conversation a little bit around Gratz in a way that I don't think anybody was particularly anticipating. And, the, and this chief counsel memorandum came out on December 30 of 2021. So that's fun. You know, it's like a nice little New Year's Eve present. Um, so effectively, uh, in 2022 is when this this chief ca- counsel memorandum came out. And so it, it kind of shifts the, the thinking around grantor retained annuity trusts, at least on the valuation side of things. And it maybe makes uh, practitioners now a little bit more cautious on how they think about the valuation of the assets that are going into the GRAT and then how the GRAT is going to actually function and looking more 
closely and scrutinizing maybe more closely these adjustment clauses, making sure those adjustment clauses are in the grats, making sure that you're stating things as a fraction and a percentage, um, and ensuring that there's some backstop to to cut against the argument that the IRS had in this case. So a good a good valuation appraisal, probably still stating things in terms of fractions or percentages, and then having adjustment clauses in the trust itself. And those things probably will help to protect against the really, really bad result of this particular case. Grats are still going to be important tools going forward. Uh, they perform very well in a low interest rate environment, which we're still in one now. The relevant interest rate this month is 2%. Next month, it's 2.2%. So as long as the assets of the GRAT grow above that percentage, then there will be something left in the GRAT, even if you set it up so that the gift was zero. There will be something left in the GRAT to go to family members. So they could still be really handy tools, and I don't think they're going to go away from that particular perspective. It also perhaps indicates that these valuation rules, because the IRS was willing to apply them in this GRAT context, and previously, they had only really been applied in cases um, in the charitable remainder trust context that perhaps these valuation issues will find their way into other types of transactions that are sensitive to valuations. So for example, sales to intentionally defective grant or trust, which is something we've talked about in the past. I'm not going to go into all the details of them, but if you, you know, a sale of assets, yeah, taking back, say, a promissory note. Um, perhaps the IRS will be more inclined, if this is their thinking on GRATS, to take a similar position on those sorts of transactions as well, even if you have adjustments built into the transaction to account for a misvaluation so that the payments are always going to be the fair market value, um, which is what you want in those kinds of transactions. So it just sort of lends a little bit of gloss and maybe uh, it's a bit of a cautionary tale even though I think most practitioners, at least that I've heard comment on this chief counsel memorandum, totally disagree with it and think that the conclusion is off base. Um, you know, setting that aside, you know, sort of setting setting personal opinions and egos aside, this is something that the IRS has at least stated in a document that they know is going to become public um, as their position. And so we should take note of it and we'll we'll just sort of adjust the practice accordingly. All right. Well, I'll leave it there. So uh, as as normal, I really appreciate you joining me. Hope you've got some value out of this uh, because that is the goal. I hope that uh, we're adding value and helping you to understand some of the issues that are swirling around in this little strange world that we occupy. Thanks. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.